Hi, this is Patrick Baird, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 44 of Unknown Orbits, The Silly Season by C.M. Kornbluth. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Today's story starts out during a slow news cycle. A wire editor is pressed for a sparkling little news item. Would you like to explain what the wire is? Yes, for our younger listeners, I'm sure that's necessary. So back in the day, and I don't know if they still do this because I know there are wire services out there. They don't, I don't think they actually have a wire anymore. But the way it used to work back in the day was something like a telegraph wire existed where you would transmit stories back and forth from the field to the main office, and a wire service was a news company that maintained this flow of information from its people out in the field and then would transmit from their offices to the offices of newspapers and radio stations and TV stations the latest news from around the country, from locally. So a wire service was like a third-party intermediary for newspapers, radio, and television to help them have an additional source of news. Because your average small-town radio station, they didn't have the budget to have a news department going out collecting news. It was a service that provided basic news for everybody all across the country and with local variations. Subscribing to it would be like suddenly having reporters all over the nation looking for news for you. Right, exactly. So this is the fictional wire service where the wire editor, that's the guy who's there at the central machine, whatever it is, is deciding what's news and what isn't news. He gets a call from the higher-ups pressing him for, as I said, a sparkling little news item. And because this is a slow news cycle, there really isn't a lot to choose from. So he's just about to decide that he's going to go ahead and just make something up to satisfy his boss when a story from a local wire reporter comes in about a local sheriff being killed by a mysterious flying dome in Arkansas. So he takes that little fragment of a story, hypes it up, adds some fake stuff to it, sends it out on the wires, and it generates a huge amount of interest, so much so that his boss orders him to jump on a flying car, because this is in the future, apparently. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, he head straight to Arkansas to cover the story himself. He gets to Arkansas, but by the time he gets there, the flying domes are gone, and there's doubt as to whether it was ever really a story or not, and they're having a hard time finding any evidence, but that doesn't stop him from continuing to hype the story. And that's pretty much the end of it. The story peters out naturally because there's no real follow-up to it. And then the following year, again, during the silly season, 
reports of big black spheres all over the country show up. So again, he hypes the story, gets it out. But this time, it doesn't have quite the impact the story had last year. And then again, the following year, another story. Big circular pits suddenly appear in the ground, and some people are swallowed up by these pits. Again, there's lack of evidence. This goes on for several years in a row. And every year, the reaction to the story becomes less and less and less intense until one year readers and newspapers and their subscribers are actively hostile to the idea of these silly season stories about strange phenomena happening. And his bosses finally say, we're not doing these stories anymore. I don't want to hear any more stories during the silly season of these strange occurrences happening. And then the following year, the Martians arrive for real, having lulled the world into a false sense of security and conquer a disbelieving world. The end. The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Yeah, that's kind of what it is. But the story implies that all of these events that happened previously were staged by the Martians to try to lull people into a false sense of security. So it's a fun story. I mean, C.M. Cornbluth is a pretty darn good writer. We already did one of his stories, The Little Black Bag, previously, which is a terrific story. Around episode three or four, even. Uh, I think it's seven. I'm not sure, to be honest with you. But you can find that on our website, unknownroberts.com. Good story. One thing that I thought was really cool is Cornbluth actually did work for a wire service at one point. If you ever wanted to find out exactly how a wire service worked in the 1950s, he puts a ton of detail in there. So it's a great background for anybody, for whatever reason, that had an interest in learning about that. It's all right here in the story. I suspect the message he gets from headquarters which was pretty impenetrable. It's all kinds of jargon and abbreviations. It was a code that if you were a wire service person or somebody used a wire service, it was understandable to you. Yeah, I assume it was very accurate from his experience. Right. This was published in the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Fall 1950, pretty early in that magazine's run. And it's an example of a silly season story. So maybe you can give us some background on the silly season. I think the silly season phenomenon is a really interesting part of newspaper history. Though printing sensationalist stories in order to sell newspapers has existed ever since newspapers started, the phenomenon of a completely fake space filler came into its own when newspaper publishers expanded into the Old West. They would go to a town, set up their print shop, The primary source of income for those early newspapers was printing anything that the town needed. Government documents, flyers for businesses, anything they could do to earn a buck. And then they would also have this newspaper. So imagine you're printing a newspaper, maybe it's a larger town, so you're printing a newspaper once a week. You need to fill it. You don't want to delay a day or two. You have half a page that's blank. You have a deadline coming up which I think is a situation we're both familiar with. Yeah. Early on when we were editors of the student newspaper in college, we definitely had days where we were missing some space in the paper and had to fill it with something quick. Yes. And we found depths of desperation sometimes. I don't think we ever actively lied. I think the only thing that we ever lied about was we created a pseudonym for, what was that guy's name? Craig Roberts. Craig Roberts, who, if somebody wrote like three or four articles per week in the paper, rather than having their name all over the paper, one or two of their articles would go out under the pseudonym of Craig Roberts. Craig Roberts was almost always in every week of the paper. Different people on the paper used the pseudonym from time to time. 
And then at some point, we had the brilliant idea to kill off Craig Roberts. And that was the only time I think we actually lied in the paper was the whole story of Craig Roberts. I don't remember exactly how we killed him, but we killed him off and we wrote an article in the newspaper about his death. I don't remember who wrote the article, but whoever did, I remember it was pretty well done satire and should have been obvious to everyone except for a reporter at the Milwaukee Journal who wrote a column telling how horrible we were for using a comedic headline on the death of the student. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't get the joke. (laughs) That was the worst thing we ever did, though. The silly season was during a certain part of the year as well. There was like a slow news cycle at some point. Until the 20th century, basically, nothing happened from July 4th until harvest time. So that's when you're really desperate to fill your newspaper And the requirements of a fake story are the hallmarks of a silly season story in that you can't have the story happen in town because people would know it's made up. So you set it a few towns over. You make it a sensational story with not a lot of real details, but one or two intriguing little details to lend it an air of credibility. Drop it on page four at the bottom and you've filled your space. Yeah. The first example that came to mind is a famous Texas UFO story that in 1897, the Dallas Morning News reported a story from Aurora, Texas. It's a small town, 50 miles away, that a UFO, I'm sorry, not UFO. We didn't have UFOs then. We had mysterious airships were a big deal. So their story was this big airship crashes through a windmill into the local judge's garden, which is some nice detail. Yeah, that's some good, colorful detail. And to this day, there is a monument there put up by UFO enthusiasts, and people are trying to get the city to dig up the cemetery to find the body of the alien that was taken from the crash. (laughs) To this, I will note that old-timers said that it never happened, and one woman pointed out that the judge never even had a windmill. So there you go. Classic silly season story. I don't have a lot to go on, but my impression of the Silly Season article is that they were meant somewhat whimsically, like a tall tale. Sort of like the Weekly World News. I don't think a lot of people believe anything in that. Yeah, there is a certain tone that you can adopt when you're doing something satirical, like we did with Craig Roberts. As was demonstrated, not everybody gets it. Yeah, the Weekly World News is so outrageous that it would be Really surprising if anybody actually really believed anything that was printed in that magazine. But you've got to walk that line where it's just enough to suck you in a little bit, but not so much that you're not giving big clues to people as to the fact that this is all BS. You have to have a certain level of exaggeration in there. Like you mentioned a tall tale. A tall tale is a ridiculously exaggerated story where Paul Bunyan created the Mississippi by dragging a plow behind Babe the Blue Ox or something like that. Or Or, Pecos Bill lassos a tornado and pulls it out of the way. Right. Stuff that's patently absurd but is entertaining in its absurdity. So from a writing standpoint, I could see when you're operating a real newspaper that has to have a certain level of credibility. You know, you cannot put too much satire into your paper. Otherwise, people will start to disbelieve important news stories. Yeah. That would affect your ability to do your job as a newspaper reporter. 
But then again, I also remember when I was a kid, the local newspapers would regularly run a April Fool's story on their front page. Oh, we didn't get that. The Kenosha newspaper, I remember vividly when I was a kid living near Kenosha, Wisconsin, they ran a story of a Loch Ness-type monster spotted off the coast of Kenosha in Lake Michigan, and they had like a picture of it that looked very fake right on the front page. And that was okay, I guess, or maybe it wasn't, I don't know. But it took me in at age nine or whatever I was at the time. In the 1800s, the Milwaukee Journal had a problem with reporters from some now defunct paper, like from Waukesha or Brookfield or something, going onto the loading dock and stealing the journal's papers and then reprinting their news in their own paper. So they printed a fake front page, which is not a trivial exercise in the late 1800s. They typeset. Yeah, that's manual typesetting. That's a lot of work. Printed up a bunch of first pages to wrap around the authentic issues and left a bundle out and let them steal it. So that other newspaper ended up running a story on how Jesse James had come to Wisconsin and was robbing banks there. (laughs) That's great. That's great. He did go to Minnesota, though. Did he? That was the famous, there was a bank robbery in Minnesota that went wrong. Northfield, Northfield, Minnesota. There was a bank robbery in Northfield, Minnesota. The James gang, it went wrong. Some of their members were killed or captured, and that kind of led to the gang breaking up. Okay. I remember that from the great historical resource of movies. Oh, well. (laughs) So sometimes newspapers stretch the truth, believe it or not. It's impossible to imagine... A responsible news organization? Doing that anymore today. Yeah. That's virtually impossible, I would think, which is kind of sad. So let's switch the topic to some believable or unbelievable things. Let's talk a little bit about UFOs, as long as the subject has come up. Which, turns out, is a bigger minefield than it used to be. Which is hard to believe in this age of scientific progress. But, to be fair, there have been some fairly startling videos that have come out from the government yes, that are pretty startling. What I think is literally ironic is that you have these very credible videos from the military, which have been vetted by extremely experienced people. And you have UFO enthusiasts who are denying that these videos are real, either through paranoia over the state, or I honestly think there's a little bit of jealousy there. They don't want the government to announce UFOs. They want to be the ones to find UFOs and announce it themselves. That's possible. And of course, there's people that are going to say, well, you can't trust anything that comes from the government that, you know, this might be for whatever reasons that this was staged by the government for nefarious purposes. And One of the things that was a long-standing thread in the UFO community, going all the way back to the the 1950s, because if you remember, or if you're old enough to remember, there was things like Project Blue Book, where the Air Force studied, quote-unquote, studied these phenomena, cataloged them, and dismissed a number of them as natural causes or whatever. But there was a certain percentage that were left unsolved, that they weren't sure what that really was. And... There was a consistent thread of paranoia among the UFO community that thought that maybe the government was faking a lot of these, that these were things the government was doing. And then their response to it was to discredit the idea that UFOs existed. 
which is a pretty complex con to be performing on the American people to create hoaxes, then discredit the hoaxes in order to discredit the idea behind the hoax. To be fair, there are two elements that have now been proven that after the first year or two of Project Blue Book, the Air Force decided for unknown reasons, the reasons are not documented, but they decided, okay, we are just going to debunk. We're going to come up with reasons for people not to believe any of this. Right. And secondly, it has been admitted that some of our black projects have used UFO lore as cover. Yeah. It's almost a certainty now that some of the sightings that occurred in the, I think it was the early 90s, late 80s, that were widely photographed and viewed were actually early test flights of stealth aircraft. Do you remember Leonard Nimoy's series In Search Of? Oh yeah, sure. They did an episode on UFOs. Pretty typical for its time. Nothing stands out except they have this one woman who saw a ship over a remote road. They had a police sketch artist work with her to sketch out the ship. And at the end of the episode, they show it and it looks every bit like a stealth fighter. Yeah. This is one of the things I think that has been, if not conclusively proven, but there's very strong evidence that some of the sightings that would have been around the time that the United States would have been test flying stealth aircraft at night were stealth aircraft. Did I ever tell you I saw the Aurora? I'm not sure if that's public yet, if it's officially still a secret. What Aurora? The Northern Lights? No, there's an aircraft, the latest and greatest, it's called the Aurora, and it uses a pulse jet engine, which is a really freaky concept. Is that like an ion drive engine? Uh, no, it's weirder. It's like they dump some fuel out and they blow it up. Oh. And the shape of the aircraft makes it pushed forward. Yes, I'm familiar with that technology. I thought that was like out in space. Were we using an aircraft in the atmosphere that uses that? Yes. That I was not aware of. And... It went from horizon to horizon in an unbelievably short amount of time. And I could watch the whole thing in just, what, like a minute or two for the entire sky. And the contrail was, because of the way the engine works, they describe it as donuts on a rope, where you get that explosion okay, every sure. once in a while. Right. And so it's absolutely classic. So I'm very pleased to say I saw the Aurora oh, like 10 cool. years ago. That's cool. Um I'm going to say right up front, up until very recently, I was always a UFO skeptic. And the reason that I was a UFO skeptic was that from an early age, going all the way back to high school, I read some books on physics. And if you understand the physics of spaceflight, even in its most basic form, you don't have to be a mathematical genius, a physicist, to understand the very basics of space travel, how far the distances are just between us and nearby star systems. The amount of energy, the amount of technology required to travel from a distant solar system to the Earth is enormous. Yeah. And my question that I could never answer satisfactory was, why would someone expend all that energy to come here and watch us or interact with us? Well... As if we had some uniquely interesting quality that made it worthwhile for people or whoever, whatever, to travel those vast distances to come all the way here and watch us. I never had a satisfactory answer to that question. I think there can be a good answer to why aliens might find us interesting. 
Not long ago, I was having a little bit of fun looking at how our culture evolves over the decades and how sometimes that's faster and slower and came to the conclusion that our culture is basically technology-driven. You could, from the 10,000-foot level, look at humanity's experience as these large eras. And we're all familiar with the Paleolithic, Copper Age, Iron Age, that sort of thing. And I thought, well... What if you decided that the entire period from the end of a basically agrarian world to a space-faring civilization, what if it's just one period? It's a transitional stage from agrarian to space. If you're looking at it from that perspective, then finding a planet in that stage could be interesting. And why would you bother contacting them before they made that transition to space civilization? Well, that's a pretty good theory. I think it would be the basis of a pretty good science fiction story. You know, sometimes I wonder, maybe it makes more sense if the craft that we're seeing are not inhabited, that they're basically drones of some kind, that a civilization, let's say a hundred light years from here, sends out a mass amount of probes in every direction, looking for signs of life, looking for signs of intelligent life, cataloging planets, And maybe the reason that some of these drones are interacting with our aircraft, for instance, is to measure and gauge our level of technological development. That's a feasible theory, I think. I'm more willing to buy that as a possibility rather than the fact that little green men are climbing into spaceships and flying all the way here because the complexities involved in transporting living beings through space is far more complicated than just taking a piece of equipment like we've done with all of our probes and launch them off into space. And if they're not particularly excited about going places, you could see them just sitting in their self-contained house that gives them everything. Maybe they're just compiling the Galactica Encyclopedia. You know, they're just basically compiling data about the galaxy and they're not interested or maybe they've tried to travel into space and it wasn't particularly fun and they've decided well we should at least find out what's out there and learn about it and catalog it and there's something horrible out there we should probably know about it ahead of time or they found out after decades of doing this project where they're sending these probes out they're like well there's that one sector of the galaxy where every probe we ever send just disappears ominously and we never hear from them again. You mean Philadelphia? <laughs> the Philadelphia system. So we probably shouldn't go there. We should probably leave that sector of the galaxy alone. I don't know. Like I said, I'm a little bit more open-minded than I used to be thanks to these new videos and I'm interested to see if we can ever make some progress on this in some way. Yeah. Uh, it would be kind of exciting to find out that these were clearly extraterrestrial in origin. We don't have to solve the problem of where they came from or why they're here or what they represent. Just the fact that they're not of this earth would in and of itself be, well, it would solve the Fermi paradox, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And a detail that is straight out of a science fiction movie. Do you know what triggered this more modern observation of these ships, the better data we have on them, the better videos and the better tracking. What's that? They developed a new kind of radar. And one of the pilots says it straight out. It's like, yeah, we got this new radar in and we're able to spot them better. You know, that reminds me of, remember the Chinese spy balloon, the Air Force or Space Force or whoever it was that was in charge of monitoring the skies recalibrated their sensors, whatever, after that incident to try to search 
at different altitudes or something. They recalibrated their instruments and voila, they suddenly found all kinds of stuff floating around up there. They're like, holy shit, we had no idea. You know, so sometimes it's as simple as that, that it's there, but you're just not looking in the right place or you're not looking with the right instrument. That could be why we've got better quality images now and more data, as you said, of these phenomena. Who knows, maybe 10, 20 years from now, and we've had another jump forward in our sensor technology, maybe we'll have solved this to some degree. I'd love to see it. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. you know, I'm going to be skeptical. I'm not buying little green men until you show me little green men. I'm classic skeptical. So I don't try to debunk things, but you have to give me evidence. Yeah. To me, the harder question was all that energy and time it takes to get from one star to another. That speaks of new technologies that do things in different ways. And the very physicists who are right now saying, oh, those Navy pilots are a mistake. That must be a happy birthday balloon. They're the ones who every six months come out with an article saying how we could build a faster than light ship. And as I've mentioned before, as someone who's been writing science fiction recently and has to struggle with the concepts of faster than light travel or how to get throughout the galaxy feasibly with some sort of scientifically feasible means, all theories of faster than light travel are just that. Yeah. They're barely theories that some over time get debunked. You know, we talked about previously when we talked about cities in flight, we talked about the whole spin dizzy technology, that that was largely debunked. But everything that is currently quote unquote current science on faster than light travel is highly speculative. And yeah. based on like, well, first of all, we have to discover this unknown element to make this work. We theorize this element might exist, but we don't really know if yeah, it does or it's not. It's a very simple idea that absolutely works. We just have to have a black hole. That's yeah, all. It's a lot of almost magical thinking. And that was the other thing that I felt about UFOs was there's a certain amount of magical thinking involved of where they say, well, you know, obviously they're a highly advanced civilization and they have a technology that we can't understand. Well, that's magical thinking. That's not enough to convince me of anything. I think assuming the technology is just as bad as assuming that technology couldn't exist. Right. So the one thing that has changed in my thinking is these recent videos that are vetted, like Steve said, vetted by the military, by the government, many of which are highly convincing that clearly there's some object operating in a way with a science or a technology that we don't understand, that we don't have the ability to replicate that type of behavior and movement. The one that really got me was one of the more recent ones where they were showing a battlefield somewhere. I don't know if it was Syria or somewhere like that. And there was a drone, a surveillance drone parked above the battlefield and a globe, like a metallic globe flew diagonally across the battlefield and the drone tracked it. So the drone followed the path of this and it was moving extremely fast, had no visible means of propulsion, and it was a pure silver globe. Now it was seen from above, so there's possible there might have been something underneath that we couldn't see from yeah. that. But that was a very striking piece of video that is not easily explained. And that intrigues me, but that doesn't mean that I'm willing to take that piece of evidence and then make the immediately magical thinking leap to say, well, it's aliens. Or even more unbelievably, it's from the future. Yeah, which I think there's no reason at all to leap to that. Yeah, so I don't want to turn this into a UFO bash fest. And to be perfectly clear, neither one of us are 
experts in ufology. We're just observers like anybody else who read the news and watch videos online and listen to discussions from people. You know, I can get 20 years worth of Fate magazine online now. That might be fun. I remember I used to read Fate magazine back in the day. Me too. That was a fun magazine because it had like ancient astronauts and subterranean civilizations and... I always liked reading the features that had the single paragraphs from people saying, well, my name's Bob, I live in Kansas, and this following really weird thing happened to me. Sort of like Charles Fort. Fortian stuff. For those of you who are not familiar with Charles Fort, Charles Fort, I believe in the 1940s, end of the 1950s. Early, somewhere. Yeah, maybe even the 30s. I'm not sure exactly when he was active. He collected every bit of weird, unexplained phenomena that he could find and collected them into books, and then tried to tie them all together with some crazy theories and stuff. But it's a fascinating collection of unexplained trivia. And it spawned a whole branch of philosophy, Fortean philosophy, I believe, that some science fiction writers were into. The only other thing I would add is, when I was a kid, I was into cryptozoology. You know, the abominable snowman, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. And there's been some progress in that field, but nothing has really changed since I was a kid 40 years ago, 50 years ago, because quite honestly, probably a lot of these things just don't exist, like Bigfoot. So there's all this evidence of very large hominids, very small hominids. There's this species called the hobbit hominids. On the islands. Found in Malaysia, I believe. So there's certainly evidence of variety among hominids in the past. But I think if we had a collection of hominids, even a small collection of hominids living in the Pacific Northwest or or wherever, we would have found a body by now. We would have found physical evidence other than stray hairs. We would have found a body by now. There are arguments about that, but we needn't go into that. Right. And then lake monsters, there's evidence that some of these may be not plesiosaurs. They're actually large varieties of fish or something like that. So there's explanations for those. And I desperately wanted all of that to be real when I was a kid. I wanted the brontosaurus in Africa so badly. Oh, yeah. I forget the name of it. The The Oingo Boingo or something. Oingo Boingo or something. And it's always like this one part of the world that's like never been explored and it's way out in the middle of a place where there's no people. And so that's why it's feasible that something could be there and we wouldn't know it. Now, having said that, there is this new phenomenon where they have been radar mapping the Amazon jungle and finding oh, yes. structures, yes. temples and things in those remote jungles that they didn't know were there before. So there is something to be said for the unexplored corners of the world. There may be secrets there that will be revealed. Shockingly large parts of the Pacific Northwest are completely unexplored. Right. But, you know, again, show me evidence. That's my bottom line for all of this. Show me hard evidence. And if it's good, I'll believe it. Yeah. And I think that's fair. Any other thoughts on UFOs or the silly season? I think that will do. Okay. That's it for episode 44. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits.
guys from Milwaukee. 